You're listening to Kiss My Aesthetic, your go-to podcast for bragworthy branding, marketing, and entrepreneurship advice. I'm your host, Michelle Winterstein of MKW Creative Co. Let's dive into the episode. Greetings and welcome back to the Kiss My Aesthetic podcast. I'm so excited to have Kiss My Aesthetic junkie, Amber, on the podcast today, which I just learned. Welcome, Amber. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, I'm really excited to talk with you because as I was telling you before, I've seen your name kind of pop up in our circles and Facebook group and on Instagram and everything like that. But for anyone who doesn't know you, can you tell us who you are, what you do, and who you help? Of course. I'm Amber, and I run ABC Social Media Management. We specialize in helping interior designers with their social media. So we do full Instagram management, Pinterest management, email marketing, blogging. And we also focus on audits, strategy sessions, lower level, entry level offers to help interior designers who are DIYing their socials. Hmm. This is perfect timing, this conversation, because my mother is an interior designer and I was just giving her advice about her social media literally yesterday, but kind of walk us through your services because you offer a few different things. Kind of talk us through like that base level, what you help people with all the way up to like your VIP VIP client. So the basic, basic service we do is a $97 Instagram audit where I go through their page. I optimize their profile for them. They get some highlight cover templates. They get pin posts rewritten for them. And my recommendations of what to fix, it's in and out super fast, kind of giving them the fastest things they can switch to make an impact. And then from there, I do 90-minute strategy calls, which is if they want some one-on-one time to ask questions, covering anything from how to make a highlight cover, how to make a reel, how do I engage, how do I actually get leads from Instagram, runs the gamut. And then the highest level of our strategy service is my brand new offering I've created, an Instagram VIP week. Kind of came out of the idea that not every business wants to spend thousands of dollars a month on social media. And a lot of them can do it themselves if they have a really robust plan in place. They know their goals. They know how to make their goals happen with social. They're just executing. So this VIP week is basically three months of social media management condensed into one week. We give you the plan. We give you three months of content prompts with detailed instructions. We tell you how to implement and you take it and run with it. So that's if you're kind of in that DIY phase, you are on a lower budget, but you still want to do things the right way. And then if someone's coming to us and saying, take it off my plate, I don't have time. I have the photos. I have the videos. I just don't want to deal with it anymore. We have three levels of Instagram management, which have a range of amount of posts we'll do. Some packages include engagement. So kind of depending on how much they want to invest and how much they want off their plate. And then we can add on to that Pinterest management, which is a really powerful tool for specifically interior designers. We do blog posts as well, especially if I have a client doing Pinterest, we encourage them to add blogs. And then we'll do email newsletters and marketing for clients, especially if they have a product line in conjunction with their interior design business. You are busy, girl. Yes. Busy. Busy, busy, busy. Are you running all these things? Do you have a team helping you out? Like what's the landscape of ABC social management? So I am the, I don't know how you want to call it, the puppeteer. All the moving pieces are coming through me, but we have two people on the team, an amazing engagement specialist, because yes, I would be insanely busy if I did all of that by myself. So we have someone who handles engagement for our clients because it's such an important part of Instagram. We include it in our highest level of Instagram management package. So they're getting that community engagement, that outbound engagement. And then I also have a Pinterest manager because I will rave all day about Pinterest. 
I have a very baseline knowledge of it. I used it years ago as a blogger, but I brought in somebody who specializes in Pinterest for interior designers. So she is awesome. She handles that part of the business and has been killing it for our clients. Before we get into nitty gritty, because I'm going to circle back to what you just said, because there's so much here already, like just between Instagram and Pinterest, like I could talk for forever. But I want to know your background. How did you even end up doing this? What was your path to getting here? Like, what did you learn or do certifications for or not? Or just like university Google? Like, where do you get your expertise, I guess? So it was such a roundabout journey to finding social media, but also full circle. I started on Instagram literally when it came out. It was the first app that was not native to my iPhone when I got my first phone in sixth grade, because that was the year it came out, 2009, 2010, about. And I was sharing photos from that I took on my grandfather's camera. It was a passion we shared. We used to go on photo trips. And I was in these photography groups. And in the early days of Instagram, throwback to the square photos, the Valencia filters. I was on there in those days. And I always had some type of public presence on Instagram. I always loved photos and creating content. But then I was so sure I was going to go into politics. Oh, Yes, I went to Georgetown in DC and I was studying international politics. And freshman year, everything hit me. And I thought, oh no, this is not what I want to do. I didn't enjoy the thought of spending my life on Capitol Hill. I was living in DC with everybody who was so excited about these internships and the classes. And I did love my teachers. The community there was amazing. But I was like, nope, that is not where I see my career going. So I was kind of in this holding pattern of what am I going to do? I'm going to keep studying this because I'm in Georgetown. And then COVID hits. And I go home and I'm living with my parents full time. And at the same time, I'm really getting back into riding. It was my passion when I was younger. I took a break in middle and high school and was riding full-time, doing my classes online, and was starting to think about what other paths I could take. Also, flashing back to freshman year of college, I was taking photos of my skincare routine in my dorm room because I needed something that got me out of the studying history, studying economics, something creative. I was missing that. So... Over the course of college, I built up a following as a skincare influencer and content creator. And I worked with a lot of brands, did PR of brands like Briogeo, Sand and Sky, Youth to the People, and had built up a little community around that. And when COVID hit, leveraged that into an internship with a skincare brand for their social media and marketing. Basically, my skincare influencing page was the whole reason I got that internship. She was like, you know the community, you can take this and run with it. And that internship was a fire hose in the best way. I did Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, ads, Twitter, TikTok, LinkedIn, engagement, influencer management. And she had a small team of interns, but I was front and center in social media and marketing, working one-on-one with her. And I also had at the same time an email marketing and communications fellowship. So I was getting a lot of firsthand real experience in marketing that was so opposite from what I was studying in college. Most people are surprised. I did not study marketing. I did not study anything to do with marketing or business. I didn't study marketing either. So I'm with you. Yeah. But you find it unconventional way. And I just kind of found my footing, really enjoyed it. Junior year hit and I was thinking about getting another internship, exploring PR. But as my writing ramped up, I was starting to think about what I could do that would give me the time freedom, the flexibility, the location freedom to pursue that passion and still do something I really enjoyed creatively. So I said, okay, I'm in college. And actually, my major classes are winding down towards the end of junior year, I knew I was going to graduate early. 
I said, I'm going to see if I can get some clients. I'm going to call it ABC Social Media Management because it's a play on my initials and see what happens. Mm -hmm. I love that. Okay, so we have a very similar path, actually, because I also started my business kind of in college, junior into senior year, and kind of was in the same boat of like, well, let's see if people will pay me to do this thing I kind of know how to do (laughs) and then kind of take it from there. But yeah, I mean, it sounds like you just live and breathe social media, as do I. I'm such a junkie for Instagram and TikTok and all those things. And Pinterest as well. And I think you brought up a good point that you've got specialists on your team to do the special things. This is quite literally the timing of this couldn't have been better. I just had this conversation with my mom yesterday. She's an interior designer. She's hired a social media intern. She's now stuck at what to tell the intern to do. And she was going to have the intern writing her posts. And she was going to do her own stories. She goes, what should I tell her to make posts about? And I used to do my mom's social media management. My team and I did. And I said, the biggest, hardest thing, I think, especially with interior design, is that you know things about the projects that we will never know until you tell us. So it's very hard to be your replacement. Instead, can you outsource the stuff that's fluff? Like, can you get someone, can you have this intern help you with the fluff content that buoys the rest of your content so that you're actually still the expert and you're still coming through in your voice? And so she goes, yeah, but I'm doing that on stories. I was like, yeah, but your stories are going away in 24 hours. Like, switch it. Let's get you writing the big juicy content, the think piece, right? Like if you pick up a People magazine because it says like mom of 10 beats cancer, like you're trying to read that story, right? But you're also getting served like what's in Victoria Beckham's purse, like the fluff stuff, right? You're going to get like, you're going to have a lot of things that you're going to get in that magazine. And it's a lot easier to outsource fluff content than it is to outsource like editorial, like high level thinking, this is our process. These were the details. We had to choose between quartzite counters or marble counters. This girl, and I feel for her because there's no way she's going to be able to execute on that high level of content without actually being the person with 20 years experience. Do you run into this with your clients? And what kind of advice do you give them when they do have such specific knowledge of their field? We definitely do. It's something that I actually didn't start out with interior designers. My experience was beauty, health, and wellness. So I started there got an interior design client by accident, fell in love with the niche. And that was something I had to learn how to fulfill my promise of giving them time back, taking this really frustrating, overwhelming task off their plate of social media. A lot of interior designers just don't enjoy it. But how do I do that while still bringing in their unique experiences and those intricate details that I just didn't know? Some things I've learned over the past year and a half of specializing in interior designers, there's some things I can just get very quickly about their language, about the way they speak. But we do a couple interesting things in our process. So when we have a client on board, we have an additional questionnaire that's project specific. And every project they've completed, we ask them a couple questions, you know, give us an overview of the project, give us your favorite moment, give us the biggest win from the client, give us the most frustrating thing. And from there, we pulled out those little details for the content. The other thing I'll have clients do is that if it's something really intricate or something specialized to their area of expertise that I just can't write on. I say, look, I'm not going to ask you to do the post. That is my job. But can you send me a voice note? And I'm very flexible with them. I say it can be Instagram DM. It can be on Slack. If you want to film a video, whatever is easiest for you to just talk and kind of expound on something that's really niche, do it and I'll cut it down. I'll use it for content. So we do approach it as a collaborative experience because When you're working in such a specialized, intricate industry, it's not exactly fair to say to the intern, come up with 
you know, my five social posts for the week. They're going to be fluffy unless that intern is baked into the business's processes and day to day. That's literally almost verbatim what I told my mom. I said, listen, her writing you a post is a picture of a coffee center that says coffee or tea is not going to move the needle for you. Like that's not going to be anything that anyone is going to stop scrolling, read, save. Like, okay, maybe the image is beautiful, but there needs to be like a reason for people to come back to your account. So by just shifting her focus to say like, hey, stories are much easier in my opinion to craft and to pull together than your actual posts. So like, is there a balance? Then you can look at the end of the month and your analytics and see, okay, which post actually performed and now can we repurpose the content of the stuff that did well that's coming from her source knowledge? Then that's when you use the tools like ChatGPT and start making graphics and doing all those things. Do you guys incorporate repurposing as part of your workflow? Yes, especially if a client is coming to us with quite a backlog of content. Another thing we'll do is that if the client has blogs, I'm working with one client now who has years and years of blogs, that we'll turn to those to repurpose into Instagram captions, into stories. And that's great because they're written in that client's voice already. So I can turn to them for that source knowledge. But then we also will, you know, fill in some of that fluffier content, you know, that's an easy like, that's an easy engage. We don't want to fill every single caption with these really meaty, heavy topics. But when we're talking about, you know, a project reveal or really complex topic that they addressed with a client that we want to get into, that has to come from them. And then in the future, you know, if the post performs well, we'll absolutely go back and repurpose it. To your point, the repurposing. And I didn't mean to say fluff as in it's like insignificant. I mean, stuff that's more of the quick audience engagement, that's a quiz or a roundup or a trend report, like things that could be more ubiquitous, still educational, but a little bit more ubiquitous than something that's like meaty, like you're talking about. You also said that you've got somebody specifically on engagement. And this is another thing I recommended to my mom that she could help outsource is finding someone to just do the community management part so that it's not resting on her shoulders, but it's being responded to quickly. Comments are being replied, DMs are being answered. What's your protocol or your kind of like guiding checklist that you're working with with your team member who does engagement for your brands? And what are the goals of that engagement? So the package that has engagement is 30 minutes a day. So my team member logs into a client's account and we have a customized SOP for each client. It depends on that client's goals, what they're prioritizing. For example, one client who is really heavily focused on lead gen and getting new clients in, we're going to be pretty much every day of the week doing outbound engagement with new audiences. A couple days we'll spend some time catching up on comments and DMs, but that's just not the priority. We're focused on bringing new eyes. For another client who's more focused on engaging her current audience, we're spending a lot of time in that follower list, a lot of time going through who's been engaging with her content that week and touching them again. And to do it, we use a tracker. We have a tracker that lists every touch point we've made, the times we've gone back to that person, where they are in a lead journey. So if it's the first time we've interacted with them, if they've expressed interest in a service or for one of my clients buying their digital product at some point. So we use that to kind of guide the engagement. But then in terms of goals and focuses, it's really dictated by the client. The overall goal is, of course, to keep engagement up, to keep the account active and show that we're responding, that we're building a community. I find it kind of irritating on the consumer side if I see that someone never responds to their comments. Of course, I, you know, being in social media, I don't expect that like instantaneous response, you know, when someone DMs a customer service person and saying like two minutes, why haven't you answered my question? Not that. But you know, if all of their comments go unanswered, and you're sending DMs and asking questions, and they're not getting back to you, it's just not good 
in terms of customer service and it's not good in terms of community building. Agree completely. And it takes a totally different skill set. Like the person that can proactively identify if someone is going to be a potential client or not is not necessarily the person that's pulling together the post and writing the captions. And I kind of had to break that down too. And it's so funny because my dad worked like marketing at this corporate job for like 20 years. And he's so convinced that you can just hire one person to do your marketing. Like that one person should know all the things. You should know all the social medias. You should know all the ads. You should also be able to design a website. And I'm like, dad, you're describing 20 different people's jobs. I said, just on my team for Instagram alone, you've got me as creative director, Madison as graphic designer, Josephina doing videos, Gabby doing all of the content posting and all of the captions. And then we have Brittany doing engagement. That's already five people on one account. I was like, those are all separate job descriptions. Like, and it takes different skill sets. And I think that people don't realize that often. Do you feel like that's a misconception? I do for sure. I especially see it in corporate or traditional job postings where they're expecting, you know, that term that's thrown around a lot, a unicorn. And for sure, like I cross multiple jobs in my business because we don't have a massive team. I am creative director, very basic graphic designer. I tell my clients, you're not getting a pro graphic designer. If you have templates you want to use, amazing. Especially for my interior design clients, the priority is their photos and videos. So we're not really leaning on graphics as much. But I'm telling them, I can do graphic design. It's not a pro level. In the beginning, I was the engagement specialist. I still am. I'm the engagement supervisor for all my clients, making sure things are happening. We're moving towards goals. So people can step into multiple roles. And I think it's really common, especially in the corporate space. You know, when companies are trying to maximize their budgets, they don't want to hire 20 people. And there is going to be some crossover. And I also think that there are roles that are related. You know, engagement specialist often ties into the content creator because they're both involved in the account. But going beyond that, you know, paid versus organic or website design or emails, they all can be very specialized roles. And it depends on how deep you want to go. But to sum up my whole rant on this, it's an unfair expectation to that person. I understand there's sometimes financial reasons for it, especially talking about a traditional nine to five corporate role but they expect too much of their social media marketers. You know, the joke that it's a one-person marketing team, it usually is, and it's too much pressure on that person. You know, if you looked at any one of those roles, social media manager can be a a 40-hour-a-week job, website designer can be a a 40-hour-a-week job, and you're trying to combine them all into one person. Preach it. I mean, I feel like I told this exactly to a client recently where I said, like, your expectations are so far from what is reality. (laughs) Because you're also expecting, sometimes they expect like, oh, I'll pay you to run my Instagram and then therefore my business is fixed. And that's just not the case. Or therefore I'll make all my sales this quarter. I'm gonna pay you to run this social media and then everything will be solved. And I'm like, this is supposed to be a relationship. Like our output is only as good as your input. So if you're giving us jack shit, nothing to work with, you have no photography, you have no message, you have no campaign, you have no goal, we can't craft anything for you that's going to actually move the needle. Like we got to start from somewhere. So I think we talked right before we started recording about how important like branding is when it comes to social. Talk to us about the things that are like your non-negotiables, like the clients have to have at least this part locked in before they can work with us. It is so frustrating to work with a client who doesn't have certain things locked down. And it's even mindset. Like now one of my biggest requirements for a client is their mindset about social media. I understand it's a big investment, especially for a small business owner, a solopreneur, or someone who just has an assistant and you know they're doing all the designing. I know it's not pennies to work with me. My prices are not low. When I started out, I was charging $400 a month. I charge, I think it's four or five times that now. 
for Instagram management because of how much we've grown and that we have team members now. But anyways, all that to say, I know it's not pennies, but it's also not solely responsible for your business. If you multiply that out to a year, it would be the cost of a part-time employee, essentially. And no part-time employee, if you're looking at a traditional corporate business, would be responsible for the success and growth of your entire company. So one of the things I look for in a client is how stable and how confident are they in their business at this point? Are they coming to me and saying, I'm not making any sales. I need clients right now or my business is going to go under. I can't work with you. It's not that Instagram doesn't help you make sales. It does. My entire business practically is built from Instagram, from me showing up. A lot of my clients, a huge amount of their business comes from Instagram, comes from the referrals that come through the networking we do there. But if you're coming to me in a complete panic and saying like nothing is working, I can't take that on because that means something else is going wrong. It's very unlikely that your marketing is the death knell for your business. Something else is wrong, whether it's your pricing, your website, your customer journey. And that's not on me to fix. No. So also beyond that's the biggest one I look for, just how they're talking in their intake form and in the discovery call. But also I look for branding. I look that they've gone through some type of brand strategy. They understand their position in the market. They can clearly tell me this is who I like to work with. This is who I'm trying to attract. This is who I don't want to attract. And then for me, especially because I am a remote worker, I can't fly across the country and get content for them. You know, I've played with the idea. Maybe I would at some point, but that's going to be another expense for them. Sorry for me to get on a plane and come fly to you and take photos. As it should be. Yep. And a lot of businesses don't want to pay that. I need to make sure you have photos and videos because one of the most frustrating things as a marketer trying to do my job is to be struggling and pulling teeth to find any photo. And, you know, I'm all for content repurposing, but if we're posting the same photo three times in your most recent 12 posts, that looks really bad. It does. Yeah. And if we have no videos for reels, like that and the mindset are truly the two biggest things. Having visual assets and being willing to invest in more so we have fresh content and their mindset around what role social media plays in their business. And your social media is a tool. Your social media is not your whole business. And I think that that's a thing that gets kind of lost in the sauce too. Like we had a client that was a designer a while ago. We were running her socials. She got seven discovery calls. And she was doing house visits on the discovery, going driving to people's houses, wasn't charging them for it. And then we said like, okay, so did you book anyone? And she's like, no. And we're like, girly, that was the whole point. It's like, okay, first of all, I would never recommend that you show up to your house unpaid, but then you didn't sell them on any packages or services. Like what? And so we just kind of kept like, we were doing a holding up our end of the bargain. And then it got to a point where it's like, okay, this is clearly like, again, bigger issues below the surface here. All that being said, Instagram itself can be a bit of a beast. And even if you're like us who like live and breathe these social platforms, there can still be times where you create a post and you're like, oh my gosh, this is going to be so great. And then it absolutely tanks or, you know, something crazy happens and all of a sudden you can't see anyone that you're following's content anymore or the platform changes so drastically. Like it's even so different than it was a few years ago. How do you navigate and stay on top of what's going on with Instagram? And how do you also explain to your clients that we're creating quality content? There's a lot more factors at play than just like you get the client that says like, I just want to go viral. Explain that to me. Explain your thought process. You had a very visceral reaction. It gives me hives. That verbiage specifically gives me hives. But it comes down to that even though we study the analytics and I use them and I look at the numbers, I 
don't want to work with clients who are judging the value of their investment by the numbers in that specific month. I'm looking at trends. I'm looking at the details of what Instagram is telling us about this post versus that post. And I'm looking to the numbers to tell me, you know, what does this help me learn about my audience? It's not this post failed because it got lower reach. It's what can we learn? Should we try out different hashtags? Should we try out a different topic? Was a different visual better for sharing this message? Was it not eye-catching enough? And looking at those analytics as tools and not as a judgment on your success or failure in social media. I think that's where it gets kind of unhealthy. To where I look to improve on social media is I love consuming on TikTok. A couple of marketers, you know, keeping up with industry changes, algorithm changes, looking to Masseri on Instagram and his updates, reading a couple different newsletters in the industry, staying on top of any changes, any things that people are seeing. But I think there's a balance of that, right? Like if you get too in the weeds with the algorithms changed and it's changed again, it's changed again. It does change that much, but not in the way everybody thinks. Like in those viral posts, it changes constantly because it's machine learning. And it's learning based on what you're telling it, what your followers are telling it, what everybody on Instagram is telling it taking all these inputs and shifting it for its sole goal of keeping people on the app. But Instagram technological experts, engineers, whatever their name is, are not going in and changing the algorithm on a daily basis to mess with your business. It is machine learning how to show you the content that will keep you on the app. I went on a bit of a tangent because that's my biggest... No, it's good. No, it's a great tangent because it's also the same people that are like complaining about being shadow banned and complaining about Instagram and the algorithm changing, it's the same people where you're like, okay, but do you realize you can reach your ideal client for free? Like pre-Instagram, like, okay, yeah, you've paid an expense to have some scheduling tools or to work with one of us or something. But the actual intended purpose of creating community around your business and you don't have to physically go anywhere, that's like absolutely unheard of 25, 30 years ago. Like you're not doing door-to-door sales. You're not dropping off pamphlets at people's door. You're not having to rely on conferences and events and things like that to keep your business. And you can scale to like unreal numbers by reaching people and solving a problem. And I think people take that for granted, like the actual power of the social part of social media. Do you agree? For sure. And I think they are expecting instant gratification. Going back to your phrase, you know, can you make me go viral? That's so many clients say. It's a disconnect from the realities of Instagram. Everybody wants to market on Instagram and everybody wants to get clients on Instagram. The number of users is just going up and up and up and it is becoming more competitive. People are comparing their success now to the success of, you know, the pandemic early days when everybody was on Instagram. Of course, your engagement was higher. All we did was scroll. All we did was be on Instagram. And even going back to, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, the numbers were going to be higher because there were less people on Instagram. It was less competitive. You're always going to be competing against an increasing number of users competing for that attention, especially as people also, their attention spans go down. You know, now we are addicted to seven second videos and our, what gets our attention, what keeps it is becoming increasingly harder to achieve. And then also looking at, you know, Instagram averages. I pull these all the time for clients because, you know, they're not super psyched with their reach. And I say, okay, well, Instagram average is somewhere in 12 to 15%. You're reaching 30% of your audience without any paid media. That's solely organic. I know you think that number doesn't compare to the bro marketer. I'm going to go there. Bro marketer who's sharing, you know, his million hits. But is that guy running ads? 
And also actually compare it to his number of followers. He might be reaching a lower percentage of his audience than you are. Let's even call out some of the pages that your clients send you. And they're like, well, this person's crushing it. And I want to have as many followers as them. And then within 30 seconds, I can figure out that their followers are fake. Oh, yes. When someone's like, this page is doing amazing because they have 100,000 or 500,000. And I go, okay, right. But they have 30 likes and you have 30 likes with 3000 followers. So exactly. So people always ask me, they're like, how do you know if someone has fake followers? And to me, it's like so simple. What do you look for on an account to know if they've bought their followers before? That like to follow ratio. I'm not saying every single one of your followers has to like your posts. That's not realistic. But if there is a huge discrepancy, and I'm not even talking about like 30 to 45 and 6,000, that's still within normal limits. Someone has a K in their follow number and their likes are below 100 on a post, you probably bought followers. Same thing with comments. If I don't see any comments, that tells me that they're probably inactive or bots. And also just looking at, you know, if I happen to be in the account for any reason, if it's a potential client or someone I'm auditing, and I look at their reach numbers or saves and shares, anything like that, if they're very low for the number of followers, you can tell they were probably purchased. You can also go click on who is following them. Take a little scroll, a little gander through. And I feel like a dead giveaway is if they have a ton of followers with whack ass profile names and no profile image, and you click on that account, and that account is following 7,982 people, has 800 followers, and has zero posts, that is not a real Instagram account. And so I have to tell clients all the time, I'm like, we should not ever be chasing your following number because number one, it's not indicative of the success of your business. Number two, it's way too easy to fake. There's too many people out here faking it. And would you rather have crazy high followers or would you rather reach the people that are actually going to pay you money? Because like, again, people I think also get it conflated with like the influencer industry of like, oh, well, once I have 100,000 followers and all these brands are going to be knocking on my door to work with me. It does not work like that. No. Like I have to tell people like this all the time. Like if you want to have a partnership, if you're an interior designer and you want to have a partnership with Lowe's, Start making content that Lowe's is going to want to see. Then approach them. Don't wait for them to come to you. Like there's too much, I think, of people being like, okay, well, once I hit this, once I hit this level, then all these brand deals are going to come flooding in. And that's just like so not reality at all. Explain your philosophy about the whole like brand partnership, influencer culture. Like what are your thoughts just off the top of the dome? What's stuff that keeps you up at night? So as someone who did some low-level influencing, like high-key micro-influencer, less than 2,500 followers who really enjoyed it. I think there is way too much focus on number of followers because oftentimes the accounts with a huge number of followers, brands are paying for the exposure, for sure. But they're being exposed to followers that are probably inactive or paid for, especially in the early days of influencing. A lot of influencers were even told by their managers to pay for a following to have that street cred and to start building it. So there's a little bit of a disconnect from the brand side of they equate followers to value and then they're disappointed with the return on their investment when they're paying for paid posts. But then they also devalue creator content. You know, I dealt with a lot of brands who thought just because I posted a picture with their products that I bought with my own money that they could just repost it. And I was like, not without at least asking me for permission. I wasn't going to charge them 10 grand to repost my picture. I'm not saying I was some National Geographic level photographer. But shoot me a DM or, you know, have a question. And I would typically charge, you know, somewhere between 100 and 250 for a post, depending on the size of the brand. 
they could pay that. But so many brands wanted to do value creators. I got so many offers that were, can you create, you know, six Instagram feed posts and three stories and two reels and do this interview and share all of our content on your stories for a serum and a moisturizer. And we want to use all the creative in perpetuity and not give you any payouts from any of the revenue or royalties created off of the content that you made. Love it when that happens. Oh my gosh. I am honestly so glad I started as a creator and dealt with a couple nasty situations of usage rights because it got me thinking about contracts even before I officially started ABC Social Media Management. And you bet I had the best contracts when I started because nobody was getting one over on me because brands back when I was doing influencing would sneak these excessive usage rights terms into you know one hyperlinked term on the PDF of the brief that they send you. Or, and it's even worse, and it happens with interior designers, and I warn my clients about it, when huge brands like Williams and Sonoma, Serena and Lily, Pottery Barn, not slandering them, by the way, it's a typical marketing practice, but they do it, it's public knowledge, they leave a comment if an interior designer has tagged them as something they've used in the client post, and they say, if you agree to let us use this photo, hashtag yes, and it gives you a link. And that obviously isn't clickable. If anybody puts a link in an Instagram caption, it gives me an eye twitch but they put a link that they know you're not going to go visit. And I have typed in these links to show my clients the dangers of hashtagging yes. They think, oh my God, it's so great. Williams and Sonoma wants to feature my photo. You go to the link. They don't have to credit you. They don't have to pay you a cent. They can use it anywhere. It's global usage rights in perpetuity, no royalties ever. They own the photo, which especially for interior designers, and you got me heated on this one, (laughs) especially for interior designers, if you have paid a photographer to take photos of your project, you may be in violation of that photographer's contract by hashtagging yes, because you've transferred the ownership to that brand. So you are screwing yourself over and you're potentially screwing over your photographer. It's one of the shadiest marketing practices. And it gives me anxiety every time I see it. And it makes me mad because these brands, they know better. A thousand percent have the budget to compensate. They know that they should be paying for this content and they just want to get one over on, on creators. It makes me so mad. The same thing happened to my sister literally this week. She's a wedding planner. She planned a styled shoot. She worked with a photographer. I think they either worked for trade or she paid him. Then there was an account this week that shared one of her images and they put their logo on top of her image, shared it, and then didn't tag her on the photo, but just mentioned photo credits at Sistered States. The balls on this account to say, I'm going to lift somebody else's photo, slap my logo on it, and then have the audacity to tag them in the caption, but not actually tag their image. Are you joking? Like, that's not what this is. That's not social media. And I think you see it so much in creative fields, which is so disheartening. You see it in interior design all the time. And this is one of my mom's pet peeves. It's like, especially when you're a new designer, there's kind of a culture of like people wanting to repost images that they see from other designers that they like. There is totally an etiquette to like repost culture. And what I hate seeing is people that just grab images from Pinterest and say, photo credit Pinterest. That is like not it. I actually got into a huge, this is a funny story because this happened a few years ago now, huge social media fight with this girl in 2018. I was in her Facebook group, following her on social media. She made a whole series of stories about how she makes affiliate income on Pinterest. And I was like, okay, you have my attention. I'm interested. She was advising her Facebook group to go look up Pinterest trends pull images of things that they thought were cool looking, strip them from Pinterest, re-upload them with their own affiliate links. 
So she was taking other bloggers' posts, oversized blazer, right? So she would type in a Pinterest, oh, I think oversized blazers are trending. Oh, she'd type in oversized blazer. She'd pull 10 images of different bloggers, different photographers from other people's blogs, pull them off Pinterest, re-upload them, then go to freaking Neiman Marcus and pull an affiliate link for a $5,000 blazer and link it on her page, even though it wasn't even the blazer in the photo. And I was like, hold up. You're not only like stealing photography content, you're monetizing it and you're teaching your audience how to do this. This is so categorically, horrifically wrong. And so I messaged her and then I called her out of my stories and I was like, listen, this is not okay. That is quite literally stealing, but stealing. And so I had to kind of explain. And then I really did a deep dive in the Pinterest terms and conditions. And if you upload original content that you created to Pinterest, it is your intellectual property. So like this girl could have been royally freaking screwed. She ended up apologizing, taking everything down and then thanking me. So it worked out for the better. <laughs> but it was wild to me. That's that thought process. And then she was also showing screenshots of how much money she's made doing this to the tune of thousands of dollars a month. No, that is. Hold up. I'm sorry. What? That is insanity. All the time. And interior designers do it all the time. They think that Pinterest is an open source photo library. And I talk about this in so many of my audits and strategy sessions because interior designers have the problem. They don't have enough content, especially when they're starting out. They're wondering what to post. And I say, get creative somehow. Use stock photography that you pay for. That is an option. Do mock mood boards, do mock projects, do mock renderings. Do not steal other people's content. And there's so many reasons for this. One, Pinterest and Instagram terms of conditions. Like you said, if you do a deep dive and former wanted to be a lawyer girl here because of Legally Blonde, doesn't want to go to law school anymore, but still kind of understands basic legalese, those terms and conditions are strict. They are not your photos. It's not an open source royalty-free library. You can get in trouble and also flashing back to being a content creator, I used to file copyright claims all the time on Instagram and I would get content taken down. It was very easy. If I proved that I posted it first and it was my photo, Instagram would take it down. They do not mess around with that. But I see a lot of interior designers screenshotting it. And then if an interior designer complains, they think, well, that's exposure. One, you're a new account. You're not giving that big account any exposure they haven't already gotten. But two, it also doesn't help you build trust with your audience. And this is something I repeat to new interior designers all the time. You are not showing your audience who are potential clients of yours what it's going to be like to work with you. If they want to see, let's call it some big names, Light and Dwell, Studio McGee. If they want to see their designs, they're going to go to their page. They don't need to see Studio McGee on your page. They don't need to see that you love this kitchen that Light and Dwell did. You know what? Share it to your stories and use it as an education piece of something you loved. Talk about a trend it highlights. Talk about something you would maybe do differently absolutely reshare it to your stories. Go for it. Go ham. And sometimes with, you know, accounts smaller than Studio McGee and Light and Dwell, those types of sourcing seeding stories can be really great connection points to network with another designer to show off your expertise, build connections. Don't steal the content. Don't try to build up this fake authority that you're a designer because you also know, and this goes back to something you said earlier about hiding the photo credit that happened to your sister, that they're going to put that photo credit at the bottom of the caption. It's not loud and proud. This is Studio McGee's Kitchen. People scrolling quickly the way we do on Instagram, they're going to not see that and they're going to think it's yours. And then you're just lying to your audience. It is such a bad look. 
It's literally false advertising. It's quite literally false advertising. You're putting a collection of images together as if they are your original things and they are not. In which case, like you're lying to your consumer. It's just a bad look any way that you slice it. So all that to say, original content, very necessary. Original ideas. There's a difference between being inspired by something and blatantly copying as well. Like I think there's also, you see that in social media a lot, right? Like the best part that about TikTok really that they kind of pioneered was that that source audio or that source trend, you could trace back to it. You could see the breadcrumbs. And we're starting to get that more with reels. But the same goes for music. The same goes for trends. Like do your due diligence, treat people the way you want to be treated. And if you're going to hop on something, be ready to give credit where credit is due. Because if you don't, it can have some very serious consequences for your account. You know? Absolutely. It's so important. I think there's a lot there. There's a lot to kind of dive into. But man, we can get heated on some topics. We can take it there. I get so heated. I get so heated when it comes to content and ownership and doing things ethically on social media. I think we're seeing a shift in the industry of people getting really sick of unethical selling, unethical marketing, these bro tactics that have been used and abused for way too long. And people are getting wise to it. Absolutely. And I think that to remind the client again, kind of to circle back what we talked about at the top of the episode. It's like, what are the things that you can actually create on behalf of your business that really showcase your expertise, but give you a framework to then get help on the things that you don't know how to do well? So if you hate video editing, by all means, don't do it. Like get somebody to help you. But I think there's something to be said about like, and I told this to my mom, like if you're going to go do a site check, go get all those videos and put them in an iCloud same day so that your content manager can cut together a video for you. Because it's going to take you four hours to figure out how to cut together that reel and time out the text. Versus she's going to get it done in 25 minutes. So it's like, but you can't expect her to go out to the job site and film the details that you want filmed because she's not going to have that knowledge. So it is that like working relationship. And that's what can make social media so much fun. It can also make it so hard because if your client is giving you nothing, (laughs) like it's pretty impossible to make anything good out of nothing. And it's hard too, because sometimes the clients that come in with the least in terms of assets, in terms of brand strategy, are also the ones that are putting all of their hopes on social media. And I understand it to a point. When you're thinking about outsourcing that first thing in your business, a lot of times people jump to social media right away. It's the thing that's the most time consuming for them. It causes the most stress. And they're thinking, okay, I need to get this off my plate. But then they're pinning all their hopes on this because this is the first time they've had room in their budget to outsource. And they're thinking, okay, this has to work. But when you approach social media, when you approach any investment in your business like that, the chances of it working go way down. And that sounds kind of pessimistic, but it's the truth. Because if you pin all your hopes for your business, all your hopes for your revenue goals and what you want to do with your business on your social media manager or your website designer or your podcast editor, you're not giving them the space and the creative flexibility to do their job well and excel in it and support your business that you have to be the driver of. You have to know where you're going and how that puzzle piece fits into your overall vision. That's exactly what happened with some recent clients of ours with social media is, and I kept explaining to them, like, marketing is a machine. You've got all these different cogs in the machine. Like, yes, social media is a gear. It's a piece of that machine. If we continue to put all of our pressure on one gear, you're gonna have to replace those parts pretty often. Like, you're gonna have to keep up the maintenance on all of that. And you run the risk of just breaking the whole damn thing and not being successful at it at all. Because you're then going to expect so much performance out of one thing that's part of this bigger system. Versus we've got Instagram going, we've got email going, we have Pinterest, we have TikTok, we have 
photography coming in at a regular basis. We've got good copying and good messaging and like all those things work in concert with each other. So if the more that we're trying to just put pressure on this one thing, like you're missing the rest of it. We're neglecting the rest of the big picture here. And that's where you're getting burnt out is because you're expecting this one thing to do all of these things, which it just doesn't do. Exactly. I love your metaphor of it wearing too much on that one cog because even marketing goes beyond the online, beyond the digital. There are so many other avenues of marketing. And look at a traditional business, any type of large business, large corporate business, they have all of the pieces. They're not saying that Instagram is dictating the success of their business. They're not putting the weight of the entire business's ecosystem on Instagram. And we fall into that trap sometimes as solopreneurs, as entrepreneurs with small teams, that this has to work. And as hard as it is when it's your hard-earned money going into that marketing budget, you have to kind of think, okay, what can this realistically do? And then also getting into, you know, when clients are comparing is looking at some accounts. I often tell clients who are, you know, well, this interior designer was huge. And I say, okay, well, they have a massive PR machine. We're not just talking about marketing. Yeah. And they have a nine person marketing team. They've got a whole like nine person marketing team. Yeah. And they have a name built up, you know, they're 20, 30 years down the road in the industry. You can get there, but you have to put in the time and the legwork first. Too many times we look at somebody who's climbed the mountain and we think, okay, I want to be there. But then you don't want to do all the little steps that that person did. You weren't watching them in year two, three, four, five, where they were failing. They had a nasty client. They had to go into the red for a little bit in their business because something wasn't working. You missed all that because they weren't talking about that. They weren't as large on social media. They weren't proclaiming that. You see them now at, let's say, year 10, and you want to go straight to year 10. Right. And that's the common misconception is that because of the way that social media is and virality and like people wanting to have what seems like an overnight success is you're missing all of that back work, right? And also a lot of times when clients do have videos that go viral or pop off, like they're not even equipped on the back end to even deal with that influx of traffic. So like, okay, if you did go viral tomorrow, would you be able to service the demand? Like my birthday invitations like went pseudo viral thanks to my sister posting them, me reposting them, blah, blah, blah. But then I had like, 40 people reaching out wanting me to design their birthday invitations. And I'm like, this isn't even my job. Like I couldn't even take on all these jobs if I wanted to, because I don't have a process, a structure and anything. I don't have the talent, the people power. Like I don't have the ability to even service this. So like, that's great that a lot of people saw it and a lot of people wanted it, but it was kind of like, I wish that my projects that I'm ready for were the ones that were going viral. Not the thing that I posted is like, oh, this is fun today. (laughs) You know, so you're, everyone's still learning, I think. Exactly. It's a learning process. I think social media is something that I actually try to steer away from the expert term with it, because I don't want someone coming to me thinking that you're the expert in that I'm able to solve all their problems. I do consider myself very experienced in social media, being a digital native and having grown up with it. But I think sometimes the connotation of expert crosses into you can solve every single problem and foresee everything. And that's just not possible with social media. Mm-hmm. And this it's nuance. Like we talk about, there's nuance, there's layers. There's also like different job descriptions, different roles require different people. Yeah. It's a whole thing. I feel like I've said this like 40 times this week. <laughs> so this is a very appropriate topic for us to cover, but without taking too much of your time, please tell everyone where we can find you, follow you, work with you, maybe take advantage of one of the audits that you have. Where can we connect? 
Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at ABC Social Media Management. My website is abcsocialmediamanagement.com. Super easy. My freebies are on there and links to all of my offers as well. And if you ever want to send me a DM, feel free. Oh my gosh, love it. Well, thank you so much for your time, Amber. And we'll catch you next time, guys. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for joining us for the Kiss My Aesthetic podcast. Don't forget to follow along and leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll see you in the Kiss My Aesthetic Facebook group for years and years of behind the scenes content and over 5,000 connections with fellow creatives. For show notes from today's episode, please visit mkwcreative.co slash podcast. This episode was edited by Berta Wired and theme music comes from Eliza Vera and Nathan Menard. Catch you next time.